Welcome to the teaching ministry at Magnolia's First. We hope the next few minutes will help you take your next steps on your faith journey. And we would love to help you take those next steps. Just head over to m1bc.org and fill out the connect form and a pastor will get in touch with you very soon. Or you can text us at 281-343-3033. Well, good morning. It is, it is great to be back on Sunday and I'm going to tell you, it took almost four days after BBS for me to get the theme song of BBS out of my head because I just kept waking up hearing it. And I think one time I woke up and I was doing the motions. And, but uh, what, what a great, great residual benefit our church continues to have from children that have heard the gospel are continuing to respond because this church invested in their lives. And so I'm so grateful. And so today... That was on cue. So today, our message has been illustrated by Riley Dock, uh, daughter of Paul and Summer Dock, and we appreciate so much Riley's picture. Let's say thank you to Riley. We are going to look today at a man whose life was forever changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. His name is Zacchaeus. It's found in Luke chapter 19, and some of you probably grew up singing that song about Zacchaeus. And so we're going to try that. Are you ready? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house today, and we're going to have a big buffet. I'm sorry, that's the Baptist version. We're going to talk about a guy that walked all his life looking up. And one day his life was changed because the Savior looked up and saw him. Let's pray. Father, as we walk through this time, through this account of Zacchaeus, another person that I'm excited about getting to meet one day in heaven, I pray, God, that we would be able to see from his life what you might want to say to us today so that we can hear from you what a life really looks like that has been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ for Jesus, we pray it in your holy name. Amen. The story begins just outside of Jericho, where Jesus, as he is walking into the city in Luke 18, has a blind man that begins to call out to him to heal him. And as he calls out, the blind man cries out, it says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus heals the blind man, and the Bible says in verse 43 of Luke 18, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And you can imagine what it would be like for you if every time you had walked into Jericho, your eyes met the blank eyes of a blind man who now, when he looked at you, saw you. And they were glorifying God just like you and I would because who can believe that somebody could give sight back to the blind? 
And it's an amazing thing. And so Jesus is walking into Jericho. There's already a throng that is gathered all around him and is pushing in so that they can get to Jesus. And it's there that the story of Zacchaeus begins in Luke 19, verse 1, where it says, Jesus was entering Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. And, and very quickly, we are giving some descriptors about Zacchaeus. We are told, before we're told anything else, he's the chief tax collector and that he is very rich. And at this time, being a tax collector was part of being somewhat of a corporate entity. There would be a consortium that would get together and people would gather their money together and they would bid on getting the tax collector opportunity for a city or a province. And generally, the contract was awarded to the highest bidder and it was for a five-year period. And during that time, they would then institute taxes on people as they came to the city or left the city. So... A picture what it would be like, you are going to the city to go sell in the market and you have your wagon laden down with your goods and a tax collector could stop you. You didn't have a choice to stop. And then he began to tax you. There was a head tax for every person. For boys, it started at age 14. For girls, it started at age 12. Everybody else, head tax. And then there was a wagon tax. And then there could be a, a, well, a wheel tax. I noticed your wagon has four wheels. There could be an axle tax. There could be a basket tax. And generally what would happen is that the people imposing the tax would kind of size you up and look at your money bag and figure out how much can I get from you? Can you imagine the kind of resentment you might get from somebody doing that to you. Now, by AD 17, they had standardized the tax system in the Roman Empire. But here's the thing about graft. Once graft is inside a system, once bribery is inside a system, once corruption is inside a system, legalizing it and standardizing it doesn't change people's hearts. And so you might have been able to say, well, the government only says X, and the tax collectors say, well, me and the centurion say X plus this. And so the Bible says that Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector, which means he not only was good at his job, he was better than anybody else in that city. He was the chief tax collector, and the Bible said he did it so well that he literally became very, very wealthy. Because one thing that we would know about Zacchaeus is this. Zacchaeus liked money. He liked it a lot. He was motivated by it. He stayed with it because even though it meant that he could be a traitor to his own people, even though it meant that he could be unpopular with everybody else, when you grow up a short guy, you find a way to get things even. And he did. The Bible says in Luke 19, 3, that just like everybody else, Zacchaeus wants to see who Jesus is. 
And it says, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he couldn't because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus, and he wanted to see who Jesus was because maybe he had heard about the blind man, but we know this for sure. He had heard enough about Jesus that he was willing to brave a crowd and climb a tree. And I will tell you, when you're a small guy that has made enemies, the crowd is not the safest place for you to be. I can just imagine somebody in that crowd saying, here's my shot. Boom. So he climbs up into a sycamore tree. Not really a, well, not really a dignified position to be in. But there's a point in life where you realize dignity won't get you where you got to go. Zacchaeus climbed that tree. And the Bible says that Jesus looked up and saw him. And here's what you need to know. Jesus saw him like nobody had ever seen him before. He had never had anybody look him in the eye and see into the depth of his soul the way Jesus did. Zacchaeus moved from just wanting to know and to see Jesus to where Zacchaeus thought, I want to know Jesus. And Jesus looks up. And Zacchaeus realizes He's looking at me. And so Jesus calls out to him and says, Zacchaeus, I want you to come. I want you to come down. I want to be with you. And we know because of the response of Zacchaeus to Jesus and Jesus to Zacchaeus that something was transpiring here in this just looking across the crowd moment where Zacchaeus knew somebody sees me. Someone sees me who I really am. Someone is looking into my heart. And Jesus, like no other can, is looking into the very well of the darkness of his heart and he's calling to him, Zacchaeus, I want to be with you. I want you to come down. I need to come and spend time with you. You know what's interesting? In Luke 7, we are told there's a whole group of people that got unhappy about that. It says in verse 7, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And you see, they were doing what you and I do, and I don't know if you do this much, but I have to confess I've done it. As I drive down the road, I have a two-column mindset. Good driver, bad driver. And it's not hard to flip in those columns, especially from good driver to bad driver. Failure to do an indicator, cutting me off, doing sign language I don't understand. There's a host of things that push you over to that column. But you know, sometimes we do that with people, don't we? We say, they're good people. They're good people. That's how we describe them. And then we see some things on the news and say, those are some bad people. Those are bad people. And in that crowd, there was a whole group of people that all agreed on one thing. If Jesus was going to spend time with anybody, 
Why would he spend time with a man who rips me off? Why would he spend time with the person who steals from me? Why would Jesus choose the wrong person in the crowd? You need to know something about Jesus. He often chooses those we wouldn't choose so he can reach those we can't reach. And you need to know that for the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not good people, bad people. It's lost people and saved people. And when he looked at Zacchaeus, he saw someone who was lost. And you know, it could be that you know what it's like to be in that crowd and for Jesus to see you and Jesus to pull you out. And you might look at your life and say, how could God use somebody like me? How could God use somebody that's done some of the things I've done? How could God ever want somebody like me? Or, or I, I mean, who am I? And I just want you to hear something. The reason is, is because he loves you. He didn't love you when he cleaned up. He didn't love you when you decided that you wanted to follow Jesus. He loved you, the Bible says, while you were still acting like you were his enemy. While you were still doing things that were hurtful and divisive and held you back from the things of God. When you and I held up our fist and told God, I'm going to do it my way, not your way. That even when I'm at odds with God, that God's heart for us is to reach out to us and say, I want you to know me. God sees past the veneer of who we are. And pass the darkness of our heart into the light of what can be through Jesus. Jesus went. And I think about that. I think about that when I think about what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that were to not, not, not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And, and Paul would say to us, listen, a lot of you don't come with a great pedigree. A lot of you don't want to go up the... Uh, the family tree too far or you may find some things you're disappointed in but God saw past all that and and you know when I read this I'm kind of I kind of stops because it basically says this you didn't have to be bright you didn't have to be rich you didn't have to have stature you didn't have to have family background you just had to say yes and I'm reminded again and again how many times the Bible says that God takes the weak things of this world to confound the wise. Because when you are with Jesus, when Jesus Christ lives in your life, it transforms your life. And none of us get to come to Jesus and say, hey, here's some good news. Today, you're going to get me. This is going to be good for you. 
all of us come the same way. On our face, needing a Savior. And Zacchaeus needed a Savior. In verse 6, when Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. It says, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And literally, this word for joy that is used is a word of abandonment. It's like a little child dancing up and down because they get to go down for Christmas. And he can't believe it. He can't believe the one that everybody else wants to see and to talk to. He can't believe the one that is the Messiah, the one that has confounded the religious leaders, the one who is able to literally give a blind man's sight, looks at me and says, you are the one I want to spend time with. I want to be in your house today. Let's go have dinner. And the Bible says, and Zacchaeus at that meal in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He was transformed by this encounter that he has with Jesus Christ. He says, literally, I'm going to give half of everything I have to the poor. Now, that's a commitment. Said it publicly. And then he said, if I've cheated anybody, and like there was a question. Like there was people saying, I wonder if he cheated me. Yeah, he's going to pay four times whatever he has cheated. Now listen, I want you to hear something. According to the law, he didn't have to do that. According to the law, all he had to do was restore what he cheated plus 20%. Numbers 5.5 5 says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that the people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him whom he did the wrong. The law said the penalty is 20%. Grace said 400%. Because you see, that's the thing about grace. Wherever you see grace, you see the lavish love of God. I want you to know that God doesn't just save you. The Bible says that when you accept Jesus into your heart, he not only comes into your heart, he forgives your sins. The Bible says he casts your sin as far as the east is from the west. And wherever you are on this earth, you walk east, you will never get west. He didn't say the north to the south. The Bible says he takes your sin and he casts it into the sea of forgetfulness to remember it no more. Grace always does more than what's expected. And not only that, he says, and I'm going to come live in your heart. And my father, we're going to move in. And you're going to be with me and I'm going to be with you. And it's going to be just like when I walked with the apostles. I send you another comforter of the same kind who's coming into your life. Because I will never leave you or forsake you. I will stick closer than a brother. I am not just your Savior and Lord. I am your holy God who walks among you and through your life. Zacchaeus' life was tremendously 
impacted. He gave up what he clinged to the most, his money. Because suddenly he realized, I know what it's like to get money. I know what it's like to accumulate more money. I know what it's like to get a pile of money. And it has not satisfied me. But today, I met Jesus. And that's just rags. I don't need that as long as I have him. Zacchaeus was transformed. He's a living example of what Paul records in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so I want to suggest to you that there are some lessons that we can learn from this tax man. And whenever I, I, I think about Zacchaeus, I always think about a life that does not have an asterisk beside it. And, and this is what I mean. You know, have you ever read the rules when you get, you know, uh, uh, like an offer in the mail that says, we've got you a free vacation. And there's an asterisk beside it. That usually means you're going to spend 90 minutes, may feel like 90 hours, with somebody in a small room trying to help you buy something. Or there's going to be some other catch, but there's something. And you know, sometimes I think that when we say to Jesus, we love him, I wonder if sometimes when we say we love him, if we say it like this, I love you, Jesus, with all that I am, asterisk. And if you read the fine print, it says, I love you, Jesus, but I still like this. I'm not letting that go. I love you, Jesus. I'll go anywhere you want me to go, but not to Oklahoma. Jesus, I love you. But whatever that asterisk is, it's like, I love you. I want to give my life to you. I want to follow you, but I just want to hold on to this. And one of the things we learned from Zacchaeus is Zacchaeus loved Jesus without any asterisk, with all that he is. So what are some lessons we can learn from a tax man. Well, here's the first one. A true encounter with Jesus is transforming. If you really meet Jesus, if Jesus really comes into your heart, if you are genuine when you ask Christ in your heart, your life will be changed. When I was growing up, we were taught the three R's. Reading, writing, and... Yeah, but you don't spell arithmetic with an R, right? Okay, just making sure, making sure. But I will tell you that when you come to Jesus, there are three R's that ought to be real for our life. And the first one is repentance. Repentance ought to be one that is foremost in our life. And the word repentance doesn't just mean I'm sorry. To repent of something is to move away from something, to let go of something. Matter of fact, I will tell you that just being sorry for your sin isn't really enough. Now, follow me. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief or godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief or sorrow produces death. And it's this, there are people that are sorry they got caught. They are sorry for the consequence in someone else's life. They're sorry for the residual results of their poor choice. 
But repentance, godly sorrow, is different than worldly sorrow because that's why the Bible says that worldly, worldly sorrow takes you to death is because it can't bring about life because it's just sorrow. But godly sorrow is when I see my sin the way God does. When I see the consequence of my sin is what put the Savior of the world on the cross. When I see that the reality of my sin is that I had no hope, that I was eternally separated, deserving of the punishment and the wrath of God, and that because of my sin, I was utterly separated without any hope, without any way that I could in any way be saved except for Jesus. It's not Jesus plus me being good. It's not Jesus plus me trying hard. It's not Jesus plus my mother loves me. It's just Jesus. That's the reason why the hymnist wrote, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. I will tell you, when the enemy comes and says, why would God save you? The only right answer at that moment is saying, I don't know. But Jesus did. I didn't deserve it, but Jesus gave it. And that's the reason why there's no other name under heaven or on earth that is given by which you must be saved except for the name of Jesus Christ because God does not accept anything else but the substitutionary death of his son, period. A life that has a true encounter with Jesus transformed. There's repentance. There's restitution. You make things right. I always get disturbed when I hear people say, this is what I did, and I realize they don't intend to go fix it. Now, there's some things you can't go fix, but the Bible tells us that if you're a thief, go restore what you stole. The Bible says that if you have hurt somebody's reputation, go back, ask forgiveness, then go to every single person you said something to about them and fix it. You don't just say, gee, God, I'm sorry I said that. You then go and fix it as much as it's capable of doing. Now, some of you are saying, does that mean that I need to go to the courthouse and confess that I was doing 49 in a 45? I hope not. But I'm saying to you that if we repent, we should do everything we can also to give restitution. And by that I mean, if by my life I've hurt relationships, I now need to be committed to heal relationships. If by my life I have done something that has kept somebody from seeing the truth of Jesus, I want to be able to go to them and ask them to say I'm sorry and, and, and get that restoration to take place because I need, I need to make it, it up, to take care of it as much as it's up to me. Because that's that final R, R, which is restoration. I want you to know that God wants to restore relationships. He wants to restore you so that you can walk in freedom. And that doesn't mean that you're to be in a position where you're constantly at danger or that you are in some way in a, in a situation that is going to be a corruption to your heart. But what it does mean is as much as it's up to you before the Lord, you live at peace with all people. 
a life that has encountered Jesus is transformed. The second lesson is this. A life transformed by Jesus is different. It's different. Because I know him, my life is different. The Bible says in Galatians 5.19, there's a, in Galatians 5, there is a contrast that is made between before you know Christ and after you know Christ. And before you know Christ, it says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So that's the column of before Jesus. But the Bible says if you've come to know Jesus, then the way your life is to be described is in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There's a contrast that happens. And that because there's that contrast, it's visible to people that come in contact with you. Because a life that is different is attractive to others. When you live this column, people will notice. And there will be a day where they're going to ask this question. Talk to me about why you act that way. Or talk to me about how you responded that way. Or talk to me about the counsel that you gave. And we're reminded of 1 Peter 3.13 when Peter speaks to the church and says, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled in your heart in regard to Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. And what Peter said is, if you'll walk this life in a way that demonstrates honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is going to be people that take notice. I want you to hear this. God is looking for people he can point lost people toward to see their lives so that they can be attracted to the gospel. And it's by the way that we act, by the counsel that we give, by the decisions that we make, and the choices that we live within, that people are seeing the exhibit of what it means to be a Christ follower. Look at the response of Jesus to Zacchaeus in chapter uh, 19.9. It says, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. I want you to hear something. When a parent says yes to Jesus, it impacts the entire family. The entire family. And it could be that it's your choice to say yes to Jesus that actually becomes the first moment in the history of your family that changes what happens in your family from this moment on. Some of you grew up in homes in which it was safer to play on the highway than be at that house. It wasn't a safe place for you. But you made a choice. Time and again, as a pastor and now what I do now, I'll have someone say to me, I'm the first person in my family that ever said yes to Jesus. And this is how my family was raised because I wasn't going to let my kids go through what I went through. 
Legacy starts the moment you say yes to him. Jesus said, this man too is a son of Abraham. You see, other people looked at the life of Zacchaeus and said, why in the world would God ever want to save them? Why would God ever want to do anything with them? And you know what Jesus said? He's one of ours. You need to know, Jesus never counts you out. Up until the last breath you breathe on this earth, he is calling to you and saying, follow me, know me, trust in me, embrace me. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what is lost. You know, it strikes me all through Scripture how many times some of the most memorable quotes that Jesus ever gave are about some of the most questionable people you can spend time with. Gathering demoniac, woman at the well, the woman who anointed his feet that was said that she was a woman of Simple life in that town. Again and again and again, you see Jesus reaching out to people that other people would have pushed away. And you know what Jesus said? Come follow me. Come follow me. And so I ask you today, what did you learn from a tax man? What have you heard Jesus speak to your heart? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, here we are. And Lord, for some of us, we have never embraced you, Jesus, as our Savior. We have trusted in church. We have trusted in in being religious. But we have never embraced you personally as our personal Lord and Savior. There's not been a time that we came before you and in prayer asked you to come into our heart to forgive our sin and to become the Savior of our lives. And Father, I pray today, if anybody is at that place, that today would be the day they would take that step, whether it's time to talk to me at the front or one of the pastors after the service, but God, let this be a day that that step is taken. But Lord, there's others of us, and we needed to be reminded that we are never so far away that you aren't right there for us, calling us, loving us. And God, some of us, we thought that we have strayed away so far that we can't even hear your voice anymore. But you looked up and saw us and you called us today and said, I need to be in fellowship with you. Come down. Father, whatever you've spoken to our hearts, may we say yes to you now. May we say yes. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? As you're standing, let me just say one more thing. I was speaking with someone this week, and I was struck again with how many times I've had conversations with people who said, I was taught as I grew up how to be religious. I was taught how to go to the service. I was taught when to stand up. I was taught when to sit down. I was taught how to read from a bulletin. I was taught a lot of things. So I know how to be religious. 
But then when I asked him, I said, but have you come to the place where you've accepted Jesus into your heart as your personal Savior, not just someone you know about, but someone who knows you? And I can't tell you how many times somebody's looked at me and said, I've never done that. I've gone to church. I've gone through the motions. But I have not embraced him as my personal Savior. And so today, if that's you, can I ask you, can we have a conversation? Can we talk about the difference between knowing of him and knowing him? Because Jesus wants to know you that way. So we have deacon families who will be coming to the front to pray with you if there's prayer needs. I'm available to talk with you. When the service is over, Pastor Milt will be over here on the right or your left at the Welcome Center. There's some glass doors over there. And behind there, we'll visit with you. Deacon families, y'all go ahead. Come on. But I just want you to hear that in this church family, we don't want anybody to ever walk out of here not knowing Jesus. Because meeting us is okay. Meeting him is eternal. We want you to know. So let's sing together and respond as God leads.